welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Jeff Gaudet. Hey fellow runners, welcome back to the Runners Connect podcast. As many of you know, qualifying for the Boston Marathon is probably the pinnacle of running achievements for most runners. And obviously for some, uh, race day is a celebration that just allows them to soak in the sights, sounds, and experiences that make Boston so special. However, for many others, Boston is the ultimate test and a chance to conquer one of the most fabled courses in marathon history. So if you're racing Boston with the goal of recording a PR or running your best time, you know what, actually for that matter, if you're running any race course that's, that's difficult, such as New York, Marine Corps, or any other downhill, uphill race, Knowing how to target your training specifically to the demands of the course is essential. You need to prepare your legs for the demanding downhills, develop your patience for the early miles, and prepare for the quad-pounding downhill finish. To help you get ready for Boston, or any difficult course for that matter, we are having on our show today BAA coach Terry Shea. In addition to being the BAA coach, Terry is also a distinguished, has the distinguished accomplishment of running faster at each of his previous 11 Boston Marathon races. And he's no slouch. He started it with a time of 2.35 in 2000, and in 2011, he brought his time down to 2.20. In this interview, Terry is going to share with us the secrets of the Boston Marathon course and how you can tailor your training to prepare for race day. Some of the highlights include when to start specific training for the race, because if you start too early, you'll definitely be burnt out by March or April. But if you implement the hill work too late, you'll be fried for race day. Terry's also going to share with this his infamous 242 workout that is pretty much guaranteed to get your legs ready for the Newton Hills and downhill finish. Finally, we're also going to talk about the mental and logistical approach to the downhill start and the Newton Hills. Terry shares with the strategy he's learned after running the course literally hundreds of times. Obviously, we're excited about this particular podcast because it covers the Boston Marathon, which is a unique event. However, we're also excited because it definitely helped, will help any runner who's training for a tough marathon course. If you have any questions or want to visit the resources that we mentioned in this podcast, you can visit the resources page at runnersconnect.net slash rc23. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. On today's show, we have Terry Shea, who is the coach of the BAA, and he's going to talk, uh, talk to us about the Boston Marathon. And uh, Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Well, Terry, I did a brief introduction uh, before this, before we began talking about you and some of your uh, running accomplishments and coaching accomplishments. But um, let's give the audience, uh, in your own words, uh, fill in some details about uh, your running accomplishments and, and where you're at with coaching. Sure. Um, well, I've been a runner uh, for 26 years now, starting at the age of 13 uh, in junior high. So I guess I've been a runner myself uh, two-thirds of my lifetime. Um, coaching for much less of that, just the past four and a half years um, have I been a coach with the Boston Athletic Association. Um, many years before that, a club runner um, for the BA, uh, beginning in 2000, uh, shortly after moving to Boston. Um, as for accomplishments, uh, I would say the I'm mostly proud of that which I've accomplished since graduating college. Um, I've had a great high school experience, great college experience, but I feel like my best racing has been uh, as a post-collegian, um, especially those later in my life in the 30s, um, running um, not only 
marathon PRs, but also track distance PRs um, fairly recently at the, at the age of 35 or so. So um, it's something that I feel like uh, as I continue to learn, I've been able to get faster myself. So I might have reached that uh, limit uh, in the past few years. Um, and then hopefully learning uh, as much as I can to help other runners now as a coach. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, I think I think one of the cool things there is, you know, like you said, that you've actually been able to get faster, even though you ran in college and ran competitively in your 20s, and you're still able to get faster, you know, even into your late 30s. And, and I think obviously for, for the audience that's listening to this podcast, I think that's very helpful and, and hopeful for them that they can do the same with intelligent training. Um, what are some of your PRs in the marathon? Um, my PR is from the last one I ran 2011 Boston. Uh, it was a very, very nice day, as many people are aware. Um, and I ran 2.20.48. That was a PR by four seconds. So I actually had to uh, do the math around mile mark 26 and kick down Boylston Street uh, to make sure I ducked under that. So. Nice. Man. Well, there you go. And speaking of Boston, um, one of, uh, I guess maybe we can call it a claim to fame, is that uh, beginning, I think, if I remember correctly, around the early 2000s, you, every year that you've ran Boston, you've run faster every year. Is that correct? Is that still a, a record going forward? or? That is correct. Um, yeah, I guess I have never thought of it that way. Um, I think because every year I expected to run faster than the previous one, so in a way it was a, a, hopefully a given, although with a marathon there's no such thing as a given. Um, but yes, that's true, and I started in 2000. Uh, I think it was a, just under 235. Um, that was the first marathon that I would say I raced. Um, my qualifier for Boston was more of a get the qualifying time long run in. Um, so I think I went just under 234, or just under 235, and then a 232, a 231. And a couple years later, I believe it was a 227, and then um, and around a 225, and then, yeah, just recently, um, yeah, just under 221. So, wow! Yeah. yeah, hey, we're talking to the perfect person about how to uh, how to conquer the course. Then <laughs> you're learning yep. as you go. <laughs> I learned a lot um, as I went. Yeah, in those first few years, it was feeling good up until oh, just maybe mile 17, and then in, in the next few years, feeling stronger a little further into the race. But only I would say my sixth one, the last one, did I feel um, that I. Mm, conquered it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, we're going to get into the specifics of that and, and let our audience know, you know, everything that you've learned. Um, sure. But, you know, like I mentioned, you are a coach now for the BAA. Um, what, how did you get involved with the BAA and, and what is your role now? Yeah. Um, so as mentioned uh, earlier, I joined the club in 2000, um, a few months after moving to Boston. Uh, and I was, I was coming off a year where I really didn't run at all. Um, so when I moved to Boston, I wanted a new sort of a new start to my own running. I had always thought of myself as a runner. Uh, even though at that time I was very out of shape. Um, and so after a few months uh, here, mostly running on my own, I uh, ran into a group of guys uh, that out in Wellesley that I did some long runs with, and not knowing too much about uh, the very vibrant club scene here, um, I just sort of asked, uh, you know, what's a good club? They said, oh, the BA, is a, it's a good deal. Um, it's a good club. So it was like, okay, sounds good to me. Um, I didn't do a lot of research in any, or anything, so I now realize I was really lucky to end up <laughs> with that group. So they, those guys guided me well. Um, and so I was a club member for many years um, uh, and had a, had a brief time away for one year in Michigan, came back, uh, back with the club as a club runner. And then in 2008, uh, the former uh, assistant women's coach, um, Jeff Staub, um, sort of uh, took a step back. Um, he had been the coach, I think, for eight years, uh, working with the women 
and he got to a point where he was um, ready to, you know, shift focus um, to some other things, you know, including family and work. Um, and that, at the time, it made sense for him because the Boston had just hosted uh, the women's Olympic trials, so he kind of went out on a high note, having a really good uh, set of performances there. And so that op opened up a coaching position, and uh, it was something that I knew I would eventually want to get into. I didn't realize that I might have the chance, you know, that early on, but uh, I was interested, uh, sent, in an, sent in a resume, and was accepted. So I was very excited um, to sort of move into that uh, focus. Yeah. With. Um, so who are some of the athletes that you're coaching now as part of the BAA? Sure. Um, currently, I... I'd say my focus is on a group of just about a dozen women, um, and uh, a lot of times women sort of come in and out into competitive running. For instance, a few years ago, um, coaching a few other different women that were trying to qualify and uh, for the 2012 trials, but now in the past few months, they've each had uh, children, so they might be off the scene for a while. But hopefully, we'll see them in you know another uh, you know year, a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, but currently, it's about a dozen women. Um, about six are training specifically for the Boston Marathon, although one may is probably out for, for injury. Um, and then a few others with uh, that focus more on uh, shorter distance racing um, track or shorter roads that, where the marathon might be a little further off than them. Um, and then over time, there's been you know a number of other women that have been with the club and maybe have moved on um, geographically or to different groups um, that I've also coached. Um, including Jeanette Faber. She's probably the most uh, probably the most accomplished right now of uh, the women that I've coached um, in my short time, mm -hmm. uh, especially having a big uh, year last year in 20, 2012. Yeah, I think, did she, was it 235 was her PR last year? Um, it was to start the year, uh, okay. but then finished, uh, she finished off with a phenomenal race uh, at the Twin City Marathon where she won in 232. Okay, oh, very cool. Awesome. So let's uh, let's get on to talking about some of the Boston uh, specific stuff in terms of training specifically for the Boston Marathon and the course. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about the Boston Marathon, it, it kind of has to start with the training at the beginning of, of the training cycle. So yep. when uh, it, when you're setting up, when athletes come to you and they say, you know, uh, coach, I want to run, you know, I want to run the Boston this year. When do you kind of start what you consider their, their Boston Marathon phase? Is there a time of year that you really consider it? Okay, this is start time? Yeah. Um so depending on the background, like where the, where the person is starting out from, uh, you need to consider when the official start should be. Generally, the more in shape someone is, um, the, the stronger the foundation they have. Um, I think you want to hold off on getting into training too, too, too soon, too early on. Um, for some individuals, you know, starting out with less of a base, they might need longer programs like 20 weeks or 16 weeks. Uh -huh. um, but the women that I'm working with, you know, are already starting off in, in fairly good shape, fairly good general shape. Um, so early on, it's more of a matter of holding them back, making sure they don't, you know, get too antsy too soon just because it's January 1st, um, mm -hmm. 2013. So I actually had to send out um, the, the outline to the women right before the start of the year um, to make sure that their January was a bit more of a transition um, uh, phase where, yes, they were building up the, the mileage and, you know, building that up pretty quickly. Uh, but still keeping everything fairly low in intensity, uh -huh. uh, just sort of like solidifying that base and just doing, just introducing some early uh, tempo work. Um, but I, I tend to um, 
say 12 weeks out is when they're really getting into you know specific Boston Marathon training. Yeah, no, that's, and that's great advice. I, I find the same thing with athletes that approach me about training for Boston and, you know, after their fall marathon's over and they're recovered and that's usually like late November, early December, they stay, all right, Boston's here. And, you know, since Boston is such a big thing, it's, 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 it's Boston's here. Let's get started now. You know, it's 20 mile long runs and it's like, whoa, April's a long way away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, my wife, Carly, who is one of the athletes that I coach, um, and she's probably one of the more experienced women in the group. We have a lot of, um, you know, younger women, newer, newer, either newer to the marathon or to the club. And in January, when she was out on run, she would have to remind them, it's early, it's early, you know, there's plenty of time, um, you know, to get really excited about it, you know, because you, you want to be really feeling that, you know, during the critical time, around six weeks out, five weeks out, four weeks out, or maybe the training is really catching up to you, you're tired and, and uh, you know, but you still have a ways to go. That's, yeah. that's when you want to be, you know, feeling like you're, you're on a good arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great advice. So, you know, now that we've kind of got, got started, is there anything that, that you do drastically different or is there a different approach that you take uh, when training athletes for Boston, whether it be in that build-up phase like in December, January, um, or later on, obviously, in, in March, April, February, March, April? Is there anything different that you do that's, that's drastically different from a, another marathon you might be preparing for? I wouldn't say drastically different. Um... Anything that is different from, say, the last marathon or, you know, an average marathon is usually focused on being specific for the course, um, knowing what what the what terrain do you have um, in the in the in the twenty six point two miles, or to the extent that you can train for other conditions such as weather. Um, just sort of what is what is different about my upcoming race day that um, that I need to to prepare for. So I would say course specificity um, is, is sort of like the key in that where we might do something different. And so, you know, the fall marathons, a lot of those are, are flat and fast. You know, Chicago, um, Philadelphia is, is an increasingly popular choice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's mostly flat, just a few hills. Um, so Boston is requires, you know, a lot more um, work, uphills, downhills, but also, you know, um, uh, you know, preparing for a specific pace because there is a large section of the course where you can run pretty even uh, mile after mile mm-hmm. with relatively little deviation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so training so, for the hills. Yeah, so when so when do you typically start that course-specific training? Like, does that come in February, March, or do you, do, do you start introducing that in January? January, I think. Um, I think that is one of the things. So, so some of the early workouts were, um, for at least some of the women, were going to Boston Common, so not on the course, uh, but something where they could, in um, a relatively small loop that is usually clear of snow, although January wasn't too bad here in Boston with snow, just, just cold, um, something where they could just practice marathon pace um, uh, for just mile, like mile uh, repeats at a time, um, you know, running up uh, the, the hill of Boston Common, up, up Beacon, and then down, so getting some moderate uphill and downhill uh, work at, at fairly quick paces um, to, to start the process of um, stressing the quads, um, which you want to do, you know, repeatedly, at least once, a, you know, once a week. Um, and we're out on the course. We're actually out on the course starting in January as a club. Um, so in, in January, um, or December, I should say. So in January, we're, we're, we're doing the long runs on the course, um, covering a lot of the, the, the course section of, of uh, uphills and downhills in Newton. Okay. Uh, 
I think so, it is important to, to start that process early. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, does it does do you start the process early and then does it kind of continue to build all the way through race day or um, because I remember training with the Hansons program when they when the big group was doing the Boston specific workouts is they started in January and February doing a lot of downhill work and really stressing the quads and then more towards uh, March and April things turned more into uh, general marathon training where they, they had already stressed the quads, got the legs tired, and then it was general marathon training minus a few specific workouts here and there. Um, is that a similar approach that you follow or does it continue to build all the way through April? It, it definitely doesn't build all the way through April. I think actually I'm right now beginning to caution runners um, that they'll start to want to taper off anything hard downhill um, and try to avoid that in the last two or three weeks. Just, you know, the, the stress um, that might come uh, you don't want to keep doing that up too, too close up until race day. Um, but, yeah, the general idea is the same. Um, introduce that stress early um, so you start to work through it, adapt. And so that by the end of February and into March, you might do certain uh, workouts um, that you did earlier on that might have, you know, in January left you sore for a few days. But now those same workouts, now that you've adapted to it, um, you know, you wake up the next day and, it doesn't feel like you have done anything special. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the goal is to try to um, get that in early and, and adapt early on. And so, yeah, so you've got that uh, sort of uh, piece of the puzzle, you know, sort of taken care of, and then you're just you're just maintaining that um, along the way. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then obviously, you know, coming into late March, April, you don't want to overdo it. And that's the idea behind right. kind of tapering it off. No, yep. Makes sense. So in that in that early phase, what is what percentage of work would you say is is course specific in the sense that you're really pounding the downhills or uphills, um, and then what is uh, I guess more normal? You know, how much how much of that are you actually doing in a, in a weekly volume sure. basis? Um, so in ideal, if we could, uh, we'd probably be out on the course twice a week. But since most of us, uh, most of the women I'm coaching have jobs or school, um, a lot can't you know, do that logistically, but at least once a week, um, typically one of the weekend days we're out on the course. Um, so, in, and it just might be the long run, um, but you're covering the course and even at any pace, uh, slower than race pace, you're, you're still um, getting in some, you know, specific work there. So, yeah. I once a week. Um, there's been some days where people have planned to go out on the course, uh, but, but weather has just been an impact and uh, sometimes they go inside instead to do the, uh, to, to do a workout inside, yeah. indoors. Yeah, actually, speaking of that, you know, obviously, you're training, most of the people that you're training are, are living in the Boston area, New England winters. Um, this winter's been pretty tough, a lot of snow, very cold. Um, how do you handle coaching and training in these conditions? Is there anything specific that you do, or how do you talk to your runners about, you know, those situations where they were really excited about getting on the course for a long, hard, uh, hard long run, and then they can't get out, they got to go on the treadmill? You know, how do you coach them through that? Sure, sure. Um... Yeah, it's been it's been a uh, a theme we've come back to several times, uh, you know, in the past month or so. The first thing is um, when the plan, uh, when the schedule is, you know, sent out, you know, which uh, as mentioned was right before the start of the year. Um, I think I, I I specifically said I'm I'm not even going to call this a schedule. I'm going to call it an outline, a skeleton of sorts, um, knowing that. There, things are going to change. You have to be flexible. Things are going to change for person to person. There has to be some variations um, for the individual, but also people have to be flexible knowing that they're going to have to rearrange some days or maybe even, you know, there might be a workout where they head out and what they plan to do was, just wasn't happening. Um, for instance, Friday morning, 
we, uh, I think we're all kind of surprised. We got more snow than we expected. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Friday, uh, Carly went out to meet a few other women for a uh, medium long run with some progression uh, in pace down to their marathon pace. Um, but then we woke up, looked outside, said, well, just, just put in the time. You're probably not going to get anything quick in. Uh-huh. Um, she relayed that to the women, and that was just an example where um, not happening today. Let's just get in the 90 minutes of running, not worry about the pace. And, uh, you know, Sunday for our long one, we'll feel a little better so we can, you know, work that a bit more than, than was originally planned. Mm-hmm. So, um, so being flexible, um, adapting to the conditions, not getting too um, frustrated in, with that, just sort of keeping a level head, make, making sure that it focuses on just the consistent work over time. Um, then if indoors is an option, um, and it is for most of our women, um, sort of take refuge in once a week, just being able to, no matter what's going on outside, um, just enjoy getting inside, knowing what you're you know, that you can run a, a good pace. Um, so even though that deviates a bit from being course specific, um, it's, it can be a nice mental break and you know what, in, you know, you can get in a good workout. Uh-huh. So we have, you know, a weekly Wednesday night workout at the Ready Lewis Track Center. Um, and all, most of our women go to that, um, except a few that need to stay off, like a, sh- you know, a sharp, um, sharp turn, banked indoor track for injury prevention. They sort of uh, tough it out outside. <laughs> Carly is one of those. Um, but they can then tell themselves they're just being tougher than the women that are going <laughs> in that mental advantage. So. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously one of the other challenges of, of Boston is the, the weather is, is unpredictable. Um, yeah. Obviously this year, if it's, if it's cold out, probably going to be prepared for that, or anybody that trains in New England is going to be prepared for that. But, uh, but it could be hot. Obviously last year was uh, extremely warm. Um, how do you uh, prepare athletes specifically for weather conditions? Do you guys do anything specific in the last couple of weeks? or um, In the last couple of weeks, and this is something I think we got from Keith and Kevin um, as well, is the, is the importance of acclimating a bit to potential warm day. Um, and that really is something that you only benefit of, benefit from in doing for the last 10 days, 14 days. So. Um, there's no need to put on, I would say, sweatsuits um, right now. Um, but in the last 10 days, I, I would recommend overdressing a little. An example of that is dressing as if it were 10 degrees colder than what it is. So um, if it's 50 degrees and that's a really nice day in April uh, and you want to go out in shorts and T-shirt because, uh, you know, you haven't been able to do that in a while, yeah. I would say, you know, still put on a pair of tights and a long sleeve um, so that on race day, um, you know, whatever it is, if it's 50 degrees, it feels like cool, not just nice, but cool. Mm-hmm. Um, or even 60 degrees, which was it's a warm day coming off of a winter. Um, hopefully with a bit of acclimation, that, that feels pretty comfortable as well. So there is that that I'll recommend to them in the last uh, 10 days um, yeah. doing. Um, another thing, uh, sort of not so much physical, but more just uh, psychological or planning-wise is um, coming up with a goal uh, that is a bit of a range, um, not so much a very specific goal. Because when someone comes up with a goal time, it's usually under ideal circumstances. Um, they're not saying, oh, here's my goal time, and it's going to be 88 degrees. <laughs> um, so sort of having, having a bit of variability, um, having, having a goal range of maybe a few minutes on the fast side of everything's clicking, uh, good weather day, it might be a certain time, say two two forty five, 
Um, but if, you know, weather is not ideal, um, or maybe just a few things come up and things are bound to in a marathon, a couple more bad patches than you might expect, um, maybe something that's four or five minutes slower, let's call that like a seagull, um, and, and sort of, depending on the circumstances, anything that in that range is a successful race. Um, so sort of going by, going by goal, goal time range versus very one specific hard black and white time. No, that's that, that's great advice, and I think that's that's absolutely the way to go, especially for for day you know course and day like Boston where so much can happen. Yeah, and then I mean last year was so extreme that it it really required um, in the final days just really reevaluating everything um, with regards to to your goals because even last year the average time was way off five minutes. Um, mm -hmm. A seven last year like if you, if you were a guy that's normally running low two twenties. Being seven minutes slow was a great race last year, um, and uh, and if you were women, that might be ten or even fifteen minutes. You know, if you're if you're talking in the three hours, um, so then it's more about what do you want to get out of this? Um, and and we had a few women place very highly last mm -hmm. year um, because uh, I think they were able to um, refocus their their priorities, and we had you know two women in the club top uh, top twenty. So, and that's that's a big accomplishment, and they were probably more likely to do that on a on a tougher day last year, um, you know, because one of their goals was, I'm 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 going to the line, I'm going to stick it out, I'm going to finish, mm -hmm. and, and led to a good race. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I guess one final question as we're talking about the preparation for Boston, um, what are some of your your favorite Boston specific workouts that that you really like to do? Obviously, getting on the courses is, is going to be one of them, but is there anything that that you specifically like to do? Uh, yes, there is. There's one. There's a, there's a few workouts. One in particular um, that we have as a as a whole club workout. So we'll have about 50 runners out there. Um, it uh, takes place early February, and we do uh, a combination of uh, tempo and hill repeats, um, mostly on the Heartbreak Hill area uh, before and after. And so the form of this workout um, that I give uh, the the runners that I specifically coach is two mile tempo that's pretty much all uphill goes mm -hmm. from mile 19 to 21 so finishing up heartbreak um, and then short recovery jog backwards to the top of heartbreak hill so you might get a uh, four or five minute jog recovery and then the part two of three is uh, continuous uh, repeats down heartbreak and then back up so so no break just just uh, sort of a moderate pace down like you would cut like you would run on a marathon effort, uh, just turn around and straight back up. And doing six of those uh, comes out to just over four miles. That's four miles just down up um, at marathon effort, and that, that can be tiring. And then the final uh, part of the workout is an easy jog back to mile mark 21, uh, which is the top of heartbreak, and then doing a two-mile tempo downhill, um, so uh, finishing off with more downhill uh, running. Um, and that can either be... Uh, that can be from miles 21 to 23, which has a lot of downhill. Um, so 242 two, uh, with all of it basically um, up or down. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, yeah, talk about a fantastic specific workout. I'm sure the, the quads are screaming at you on that last two-mile section. Yep. The first time I did that workout, um, the, in the days after, I felt like I'd almost run a marathon just in terms of like the, the, the soreness I had in my quads. So, um, it was a bit of a wake-up call. I, I knew it was a hard workout do, during it, but I didn't realize um, 
just just what it would do uh, to my legs in the days after. Um, and then about six weeks later, I repeated that workout. Um, and in fact, I lengthened uh, one of the tempos. So I think it was four mile tempo, four mile up and down, and then another two mile tempo. Um, splits were you know at least as fast, if not faster. And then the next day, I wasn't sore at all. Um, so that was uh, validation for me that the time in between, I was doing good work to um, to prepare the quads for that kind of stress. Yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic workout. Um, so that's one example. Another workout, um, my wife likes this one, is, is uh, two by five miles. Um, the first on some of the more moderate sections of the course, more in the middle, um, that's not too severe, say miles, you know, uh, 11 to, to 16 or something. Um, and then, but doing the second five mile set, um, more in the in the heart of the Newton Hills, like 16 to 21 or so, um, or 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 even a bit later, where you might get more of a mix of uphill and downhill. Um, so she likes doing that, and that can be it can be either at marathon pace, uh, which is a good workout, or maybe a little bit quicker. Um, and I also think that very similar to that, uh, an important workout is doing uh, at least one or a few um, long tempos at marathon pace where you're covering all the kind of terrain that you're going to see on race day. So maybe starting again back in the earlier or middle parts of the course in Natick or Wellesley, say around mile 11 or so, um, and then covering 10 to 12 miles that takes you first on, on through some of the level terrain. You're, you can get in a rhythm. Your splits don't vary much, maybe just plus or minus five seconds. Um, so you first establish that rhythm. And then as you go into um, First, that, that steep downhill from mile 15 to 16, and then a lot of uphill running from 16 to 21. Um, you sort of take that effort that you had established earlier and sort of try to maintain that through the hills, allowing for some variation up and down, um, and then finishing off that tempo with a couple um, uh, quicker downhill miles, you know, finishing up at mile mark 22 or 23 or 24. Oh, no. Um, that's a, that's a key sort of workout, and we might do a few of those where we increase the distance each time. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe early on, at you know nine weeks out or so, we're doing eight miles of that, and then at a midpoint, you know, um, five or six weeks out, going up to ten or so, and then um, maybe by three weeks out, we're we're doing twelve to fourteen of that yeah. uh, on pace stretch. No, those are, those are three great workouts, and I think for people that are listening to this podcast who don't live in the Boston area, but, you know, one of the great things about Boston, and, and especially the course, is that it's been so well mapped out, um, both in course profiles and just, I mean, there's you can get, like, every elevation change by foot, basically, if you really yeah. want. Um, so for people that aren't in Boston, it's really easy to replicate that in the sense of at least knowing where the course is undulating and being able to simulate that on a treadmill or outside in your own block or area, whatever it is, plan, you know, obviously take some planning, but. Yeah, I, I would encourage that to anyone. Um, get some of those uh, tables that, that actually give uh, some specifics um, on the, the elevation gain or loss from mm -hmm. mile to mile, as well as the profile itself. Um, Sean Hartnett, I think he's a geographer at uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, has, has generated some beautiful, beautiful um, elevation profiles, um, not just Boston, but some other courses. And it's really good. Um, you can you can actually see some of the variation within uh, the miles themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a given table might tell you how much you lose or gain in a mile, but this can actually show you what's going on during that mile. Um, yeah, might be some ups and downs in it that, that tell more of a story. Yeah, uh, we'll definitely can, link to that resource uh, for people that are listening. We'll link to that resource form. 
great. It's on the it's on the website um, as well. Um, but even uh, our club runners who can be out on the course um, every weekend, literally, I still encourage them to go and look at these. Um, uh, go and look at the profile and and look at some of the elevation gains and everything. Because while you're running, you might not see some things um, in person. But when you go step back and take a larger view, and also like look at some of your splits. Um, they can make sense whenever you see some more of the specifics um, that you're not quite able to see while you're running as well. Yeah, no, it's, that's great advice. So <clears throat> now that we've covered pretty much everything as it come, as it you know, leads up to the, to the marathon, or at least to the race itself, um, let's talk about the specific course. Um, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you're somebody that's been you know, fortunate enough to PR on the course every single year, so you've learned a lot. Uh, obviously, one of the the main things that people stress is is not going out too fast early, um, and, and that's pretty much probably the biggest mistake most people make. But um, is there anything else that you feel is you know besides that that's that's a major lesson that you learned um, about running the course, or is there anything? Or I should say also, is there anything that you want to add to that? I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm covering that loosely because I feel like it's something that a lot of people know. But if there's anything mm -hmm. that you feel like you want to add to that, or more specifically, anything that that you've noticed that's different or or just as important. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'll get back to the the, the downhill at the start um, because I think like people rationally know, <laughs> oh, the, there's a downhill at the start. I might go out too fast, but when you're in the moment, uh, it's a different story. It's it's harder to. Um, it really does take some discipline. Um, but um, for me, in terms of like the the evolution of my uh, comfort levels racing the Boston course, um, and I think a lot of a lot of people fall into this as well. There's so much focus on the Newton Hills, um, the uphills, and, you know, Heartbreak Hill, um, the challenges that they pose. And they, and honestly, they are tough, in my opinion, um, whenever uh, you're, you're hitting them such, so late in the race. The first few years, um, I put so much focus on training so I would feel strong through the uphills that I think at the time I was neglecting um, the importance of training for the downhills so that whenever you come off of that, um, it might not matter if you had a good split up heartbreak if you if you come off of that and your your quads are just uh, trashed and then you the next mile you have to run slower even though there's downhill so um, I think it's appreciating um, training for for all of the all of the uh, challenges that the course throws at you um, and yeah back to the back to the the downhills at the start um, I mean there's a there's a number of dangers uh, there. Um, you know, running to them, too, running them too hard may put more stress uh, on the legs than than uh, than you need, uh, and the, or that you can handle come later in the race. Um, there's also um, false sense of security, uh, where the pace is just coming so easily um, that you just think that uh, it's the magical day and you can run a lot faster than what you've been training for. Um, especially by getting out a little too quick when you come into sort of the the flatter sections, you just might be in a rhythm that's not the right rhythm, um, and so they just brought you out too hard and can't hold back. It's 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 tough to um, it you know it's tough to say, okay, I'm going to now slow down 10 seconds per mile. I think it's it's more important just from early on from the outset, um, just trying not to get out too hard. So so, so when you uh, when when you yourself are running and when you're instructing other uh, when you're coaching your athletes. How do you suggest they handle those early miles? Does it do you give them a pace instruction where you're going out x amount of seconds slower than pace or x amount of feel? How do you coach that? 
Yeah, I would say I would I would say in those first uh, three or four miles, trying to set an upper limit of um, maybe saying five seconds faster than goal pace is, is probably okay, um, but but not faster. I think that might put you into danger. I know there are other coaches out there that might um, they might they have you know I've seen these mile by mile. This is how much time you can safely bank um, and run faster on a certain mile. Um, but I, I still think that can be dangerous. Um, I'd re- I'd rather someone feel like they're really very much like very much in control um, come the later stages of the race, um, and then maybe find out okay I was a bit conservative, but that might just mean they are really to, able to roll in the last five miles. Um, I mean it's it's really everything that after heartbreak I think which is where the race is made or broken. Um, you can lose so much time in those last few miles. Um, so banking 12 seconds here or there early on, um, you can lose three times, four times, five times that much um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the last few miles if you found out that was a mistake. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I, I agree 100%. So. <laughs> yeah. um, and as far as um, how to actually do that, um, because you're tapered, um, you're excited. When the gun goes off, you're probably going to feel good. Um, it is very easy to get out uh, a little too quick. Uh, so one of the mechanisms I think that helps, um, and I suggest this for any marathon really, is doing a minimal warm-up. Um, for some people that might mean zero warm, literally no warm-up at all. Um, so the two things that um, that can do uh, for one's benefit, number one, the less time you're running before the race uh, means more glycogen, more energy you're going to have during the race, which is when you want to have it. Um, so. For someone that wants to go out and warm up for 15 minutes just so that their legs feel good in the first half mile, you're, you're, you know, you're wasting a lot more energy um, than it's worth. And, it's, and in fact, it's, it's good for your legs not to be too ready to go because um, then that will allow you to hold back and um, allow you to see the first three to four miles literally as your warm-up, um, which is a good way, to, um, a good mechanism, I would say. Um, to make sure that you're not getting out um, too fast in a marathon, especially Boston. Mm-hmm. So um, have you ever gone out too fast? Have you ever found yourself going out too fast in those early miles or, or coaching somebody that has, and, and what do you instruct them to do if, if, they, if they get to four miles and go, whoops? <laughs> um, well, I, I went out too hard in my first Boston. I just didn't know it um, <laughs> until 17. I think at the time, though, it was more uh, – it was my first marathon, and I didn't have the years of training – um, that allowed me to be efficient um, at using fuel or just the general endurance, um, you know, to hold up um, in the last six miles or so. I think I positive split by three minutes, which isn't too bad at Boston. Um, so, yes, I've gone out too hard myself. Um, I've, I've never been in a position where I realized, like, at four or five miles, oh, I'm out t- too hard, I have to put the brakes on. Um, but I have positive split most of my Bostons as well. Um, so I would try in the coaching in advance of, uh, uh, race day to try to try to have a, a game plan, um, that, that makes sense to prevent them from going out too fast yeah. and, and hopefully they'll execute it. Um, yeah. no, that's yeah. okay. I mean, I didn't know if there was like some secret part of the course where you're like, ah, oh, you can, you can rest up here and, and get it back if you're, if you're, if you're not careful, but no, I totally understand. I mean, once you're out fast, you're out fast. So you just got to okay. take it yeah. from there. Yeah, hopefully they, they they use reason though, and and can um, and can uh, come back a bit. And there's been guys actually uh, that I've advised um, helped, and I've 
I get the story. Well, I actually I get the story while the race is going on because I'm looking at their five K splits. <laughs> it, a group of uh, four guys that had planned with a, to run with a group of another four guys, and at, at 5K, they're 30 seconds ahead. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you see these def- different uh, different ways of executing a race plan. But some of those guys now, thinking about it, they actually literally did turn around, look, and, and say, okay, I'm just going to slow down until until this other pack uh, swallows me up and then joins them because they, they got the sense that it was, um, it was, it was a bit too quick. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you recommend runners handle the Newton Hills? Because, you know, one of the things that, that really surprised me when the first time I, I ran the course is that, you know, everybody gets so focused on our heartbreak hill that you think it's, you kind of almost think it's the only hill out there if you've never run the course before. And then you start and you, and you, somebody introduces you to the Newton Hills and you realize that heartbreak's not even necessarily the worst one, you know, it's like, there's a lot of them. Um, but in any case, how do you, how do you, hand, uh, coach athletes to during the race to handle those hills um, mm-hmm. in terms of you know how they're going to feel about their pace slipping so much just the mental approach those types of things sure sure um, yeah you mentioned uh, heartbreak not being the hardest there's a there's always a debate um, uh, which which men or women think which hill is the hardest and for me I think I've changed uh, year to year on which hill it is but um, so I think that the answer to your question it, it starts off with course knowledge again like when we're out on the course we're um, we're not just training physically, but also learning um, what each of those hills, each of the, the miles or that stretch as a whole, um, really learning the details. Um, the first thing you, you, you learn is, like you said, there are multiple hills out there. Um, so um, knowing that mile 16 to mile 21 is a five-mile stretch, four of the five miles uh, are net uphill, each one of those net uphill miles has a pretty significant hill, um, but then also knowing that the fourth mile, the, the other mile in there, is, falls right in the middle, um, and that's mostly downhill. So right there, you realize, yes, five-mile stretch is tough, but I get a nice break in the middle of that. So that then I think helps you break up a, a tough five-mile stretch into two smaller pieces, um, and then breaking it down further, um, each of those miles, yes, they do have a notable hill, but they also have flat stretches and, in fact, um, small downhills uh, right after each each uphill mile. So now you realize that there's, um, you know, with for every hill, there's a, there's a chance to sort of recover, regroup mentally, um, gather yourself for the next hill that you have. Um, so I think it's really important to sort of break things down so that you're um, – you know what to expect at each point, and you're not like mentally, uh, you know, overwhelmed with with um, with the, this tough five mile stretch as a whole. Um, so that's sort of like the mental approach to it, um, race plan approach. And then actually, how uh, how does your pace um, vary within that? First off, it should vary. Um, in the day and age of the Garmin, I think more and more people are um, wanting to you know look down at a device. And, and use that to dictate how fast or you know they run up a hill, and I think it's really dangerous. Um, so I tell runners uh, that you should your pace, your mile split, um, four mile mm-hmm. seventeen, um, four mile eighteen, they should be slower than what your average was. Um, and by then you have a good sense of what your average um, pace is because you had that earlier stretch, you know that's fairly level, just very gently rolling. Um, 
So um, in that five mile stretch, you might lose 40 or 45 seconds off of your average um, because a given mile might have to slow down 10 seconds. I think that it, it should because there are more beneficial ways to use the energy you have for the remainder of the race than just pushing up heartbreak just because you don't want your mile split to be slow. Um, I think it's better to let it be a little slow, um, run it strong but not feeling spent so that you come over the top and you can get back into it and you can really then roll the eventual um, last five um, that are mostly downhill. Um, so for our runners, they have the benefit of, of again, being out on the course um, once a week or so, doing a lot of work, workouts where they're getting the, the data. They're, they're seeing what a pretty average time is, um, you know, for these for these sections, and they start to learn, like, okay, well, that was eight seconds slower, but that's okay. That's that's pretty much normal. Um, so again, um, learning uh, learning, you know, what to expect there, and then be willing to um, uh, let things slow up a bit on the hills, um, conserving your energy for later. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic advice. So perfect, um, Terry. That, this was this was fantastic. Um, just, just as a uh, for people that are that are going to Boston that are going to be racing or going to be watching, um, who are some of the BA athletes that you're coaching that are kind of runners to watch? And uh, you know, what should we what should we expect from them? Hopefully, sure, sure. Um, well, I coach just a small subset of club runners. Um, as like we've had the past few years, it's, it's going to be probably over 100 BA club runners out there. So there's going to be a strong presence. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I would say the top club runners. Um, First for the men, um, and uh, this is Tim Ritchie. He's coached by his college coach, uh, Matt Kerr. Uh, Tim went to Boston College, so he's run on the course a lot. He'll be doing his first marathon. Uh, he's coming off a great um, 2012 with uh, some very high finishes and some U.S. champs races. Um, he just did well at the 15K, I believe, too. Seventh, eighth, six, something like that? He, he finished sixth. sixth. Uh, last year he was third at the 15K. Yesterday he was sixth, but I think he ran faster. Um, and I know he's getting out on the course and uh, really hammering his long run. So, and he's excited. Um, and I think he's gonna uh, just, just go out and uh, put himself in it. Um, so we'll see uh, uh, Tim up there. Some other top club runners for the for the men. And these are some guys that I do advise uh, help with their training. We have two out of uh, last year's top three coming back. Uh, so they were scores on the men's winning team last year, and that's uh, Coleman Hatton and Jonathan Baker. Uh, I think they'll be up there for us again. And these, these are two guys. One is uh, Coleman's in his first year of med school, um, and uh, Jonathan's a PhD student at Harvard in public policy. So they're balancing a lot. Um, so it's, it's impressive of what they can do with their running um, as part of their uh, uh, tough uh, class schedule. But for the women that I'm coaching, um, we have a big crew. Um, the one to watch out for uh, for the women is Hillary Dion. Um, she was 15th last year in the Boston Marathon, so she had a, a good marathon in the, in the hot weather, um, and then had a huge PR um, in the fall, winning the Hart, ING Hartford Marathon, running 240. Um, so she's been looking uh, very good, um, and probably our uh, likely uh, leader for the women's team. And some of the other um, women that I coach, uh, my wife Carly, mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Bard, Caroline Condolin, Ravenna Neville, um, I think they'll be... Um, potential scores for hopefully is another BA win, uh, women's winning uh, team. Uh, we have a good streak going. And then um, another top runner in the club who was in the top 20 last year is Lindsay Willard. Um, 
and she's been uh, putting in some good work uh, on the course as well. So she will probably be up there in the mix as well. Awesome. So that's exciting for you. I'm definitely a lot of people to watch. I know it's obviously a big day for you and, and uh, everything out there, getting people to see or getting to see everybody. So I appreciate you taking the time to run it down. Like I said, I, everybody that listens to this podcast is a huge fan of running. So, you know, and you know the sport, The one of the difficulties can be knowing the athletes and that kind of stuff. And so hopefully they know a little bit now about some of the athletes that are running and uh, can cheer them on when they, when they see them going. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's been great. I, uh, Love this time of year. I'm out on the course a lot myself. Uh, if not running, at least you know, being there for the runners. Boston's exciting time, so I have no. Uh, I any chance I get to talk about it, uh, <laughs> it this this is fun. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for being so generous with your time. And um, it's been such a helpful podcast. Really, really great information. I know everybody's going to really benefit from this. And thank you so much. You bet. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks.